Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Gail Fratt, and I'm super excited to be here with you. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Stotra Chakrabarti about safari science, his really, really interesting behavioral research with lions, and much, much more. This podcast is going to be part of an another kind of unofficial series that we're doing. I put out a call on Twitter a while ago looking for guests who would be comfortable talking to me about different experiences as field biologists and got a really, really amazing response. So this is the first of that. Stotra is from India, so he has a quite different lived experience as a field biologist from many of us listeners. And many of our other guests from this unofficial series are going to be queer, trans, people of color, and people of other differing backgrounds or ethnicities, and I'm really, really excited about it. And I'm really, really excited about this interview with Stotra to start us off. But before we get to it, we do have a research highlight to go through. So today we're reading an article that, again, was summarized by our lovely volunteer Heidi Benson. This article is titled Fecal Sampling Using Detection Dogs to Study Reproduction and Health in North Atlantic Right Whales. The authors are Roland Hamilton Krauss, Davenport Gillett, and Wasser, and it was published in the Journal of Cetacean Research and Management in 2007. So the question of this article was, monitoring reproductive endocrinology, stress levels, disease prevalence, and biotoxin accumulation in cetaceans is important in understanding the health of individuals and populations. However, it is logistically difficult to acquire this data due to their large size and free-swimming nature, which makes live-capturing individual baleen whales for data sampling unviable. Because of sharp declines in right whale populations in the 1900s, researchers turned to fecal samples as a way to answer questions regarding whale health. However, this method was limited by low sample acquisition rates by human researchers. The authors of this paper wanted to determine if detection dogs trained on the scent of right whale feces would be able to find more samples than human searchers, leading to adequate numbers of statist- for statistical analysis and better insight into the population of individual whales as a whole. 
So this study was conducted during August and September over a three-year period of 2003 to 2005 in the Bay of Fundy, Canada, which is a seasonal feeding area for right whales. Surveys were conducted on two separate boats. One boat had a detection dog, handler, driver, and research and data recorder, while the second boat had a crew of six to eight folks conducting standardized right whale photo ID surveys that collected fecal samples opportunistically. Scent training took place over nine days, um, which at Heidi Rate, which seemed short to me, and was refreshed for one to two days prior to the start of each se- season. Two dogs were used alternately in 2003 and 2004, with only one dog used in 2005. Uh, and Heidi again notes that it's not stated why that happened. So surveys with dogs were done via transects running perpendicular to the wind downstream from right whales or areas previously used by right whales. Dogs were positioned on the bow of the boat, and the dog handler directed the boat driver to where to go based on the behavior of the dog until the sample was located and collected. Surveys with dogs were not conducted when winds were higher than 10 knots. Sampling efficiency of detection dogs was then compared to opportunistic sampling of research human searchers, but only on 19 days when both were working simultaneously to control for weather variability and whale densities. That's smart. Detection dogs found significantly more samples than humans did across all years. Overall, from 2003 to 2005, dog searches resulted in 1.1 samples collected per hour, while opportunistic human searches resulted in 0.25 samples collected per hour. In other words, dog efficiency was over four times higher than opportunistic human searchers. Dogs also had a higher estimated detection distance of up to 1.93 kilometers and found samples in areas where whales were not observed nearby, increasing the total area that was sampled. The authors conclude the paper by stating that detection dogs can, quote, dramatically increase fecal sampling rates from free-swimming right whales, end quote, and note that such surveys could be used for monitoring the health of other important marine species such as bottlenose dolphins, sperm whales, blue whales, and more. My only note from, um, from this, from Heidi's before we move on to the limitations here, is that nine days doesn't seem super long, super short to me for actual scent training, but I'm wondering how long it took for them to get the dog teams used to the boat. Um, I'm not sure if it seems super wise to me to just do training with the dog and then throw the dog handler team on a boat. Um, and I'm wondering if these dogs had previous experience doing other whale surveys so that them and the handlers and the drivers all, um, could actually work together as a coordinated team, because that to me seems like the hardest part, especially if you've got an experienced detection dog. So as far as limitations go, the authors note, quote, the success of this method depended on the involvement of a professional dog trainer, an experienced handler, and dogs, and a boat driver with intimate knowledge of local tide and wind patterns. It also involved use of a dedicated vessel for detection dog surveys because of methodological conflicts between visually based photo ID surveys and detection dog survey protocols, end quote highlighting the fact that in addition to having a highly trained dog and handler, which is the minimum for many projects, this specific type of endeavor requires more human experience in that it needs the knowledge of a a local boat captain and access to more equipment, i.e. another boat, which adds several layers of logistical um, hurdles. And uh, (laughs) Heidi adds, and I love this, sounds worth it, it's cool, cool as heck study. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate that. So again, that was the article, Fecal Sampling Using Detection Dogs to Study Reproduction and Health in North Atlantic Right Whales. And without further ado, let's get to our interview with Stotra. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast, Stotra. Why don't we start off with, you know, introduce yourself. What do you do now? Um, And uh, we'll go back into your history a little bit more in a moment. 
I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I'm Stotra and I am a faculty at McAllister College in the Department of Biology. And I am a behavioral ecologist or an animal behavior uh, researcher, scientist uh, by training. And uh, I am... I study animals, I study behavior of animals, and I also teach about them. And typically, I mostly work with uh, large carnivores, lions, tigers, wolves. Uh, large mammals are a sort of my speciality, but it's more, more often than not the questions of fundamental animal behavior, as well as how these animals live with the communities, that, like human communities that share space with them. That's sort of the drive of... Uh, uh, me and my group here at McAllister. Yeah. Very cool. And so, why don't we why don't we go back a little bit? Honestly, reading some of the papers that you've written and some of the stuff that you've done, it's what you know what many of us who grew up wanting to be biologists wanted to get to do. So, what were you like as a kid, and how did you actually manage to get into get into this field so successfully? It seems like. Well, that's. Um... Thanks so much for that question, because that just gives me a little bit of like time to reminisce about childhood and growing up. Uh, so I grew, I grew up in a, in a rural, semi-urban gradient in a northeastern part of India, in West Bengal, right in the foothills of the mountains, Himalayas. Um, so while growing, so uh, traditionally, while growing, I literally come from a place which has um, a lot of wilderness, uh, which is adjoining to the place where I was growing up. So uh, leopards and wild elephants were frequent neighbors, right? So I was literally growing up watching these animals and getting smitten by them. This nothing like watching a leopard or like uh, elephant or herds of elephants passing by, right? So I, as a kid, I was growing and getting smitten by them. But it was uh, not just that. I was also have had the great uh, opportunity and fortune to have had uh, fostered and rehabilitate rescue animals, right, from birds of prey to um, leopard cubs and jungle cat kittens. My parents were uh, not happy that they were always had one other wild animal at home or their son is trying to, uh, you know, having having an owl in the garage. There's always that kind of um, um, like an up and down at home. But then my parents, my family has been super supportive about this. So, so, as you can as you can understand that I was growing up uh, literally feeling and touching and like being around animals it's very easy to get smitten by them but I was also growing up in a setting where um, my my cousin brother who practices rural medicine does not uh, did not turn up uh, uh, for dinner one evening because he was treating um, one of his patients who got mauled by a leopard that same day. Right. Or I, I was also growing up in a, in a setting where um, wild elephants broke the neighborhood uh, boundary wall because the jackfruit tree was fruiting in the alleyway. So, so on one hand, I was growing up being smitten by these amazing animals, by these amazing critters, but I was also having a reality check what, what these animals can do in, in um to human life and property. So that sort of spurred uh, the ecologist that I am today. So I kind of ask questions about animals and how that can facilitate how these animals and we can sort of coexist in the Anthropocene. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that makes perfect sense as far as why you were so interested. And um, I can, yeah, I can imagine um, your parents and my parents might have some stuff to talk about as far as having the the kid that brings stuff home. I generally, it was more like raccoons that found their way to me, so potentially less consequential, but. Um, yeah, yeah, and one of the things that I'm really hearing and one of the things I'm excited to talk to you about more here is because you grew up in an area that actually had a lot of the animals that you grew up to study, you have a lot more of an understanding of what it's like for the communities in these areas and you know how, how that informs your, um, your career as a conservationist and as an ecologist is one of the biggest things we're here to talk about today. Um, so how did you kind of go from, you know, being this kid who, you know, A, saw some of the challenges of being alongside these large animals, um, uh, but was also really enamored with them to actually end up being a professor at McAllister? That can't have been a short, simple transition. Um, I think, um, so... So I, I literally, as growing up, my, I really wanted to be a soccer player. That didn't quite take off. That didn't quite launch. And uh, the next thing that I really was interested in was animals, as I just mentioned. And I, I uh, pursued zoology in college because that was something that was related to uh, something that I was super interested in, uh, biology and, like, organismal biology. Uh, most of my cousins, most of my uh, siblings, most of my uh, family members of my cohort, they're all either doctors or engineers. And that that's typically the major profession in our, in our uh, sort of the sociocultural uh, background that I come from, because that's, that's the route that people take mostly. And I was like, not enough doc we have enough doctors i don't want to be a doctor uh, as in a medicine practitioner nothing uh, and uh, so i i ended up doing zoology in college and um, then one thing led to another and the wildlife institute of india which is the only federal institution that does wildlife research in the country does uh, um, a master's program once in every two years which is supremely competitive and i worked really hard but i also got lucky to get a position uh, in that course and i got a scholarship got a position started doing it and that sort of got in got me into like like, you know, infusing, moving on, transitioning from like natural history to actually objectifying and trying to understand uh, the natural world in a far more uh, rigorous and a more uh, direct sort of way. And since then, like meet, meeting, networking with professors, ne networking with actual real-time scientists made me really interested in... Um, understanding animal behavior and um, carnivores are are a group of animals that i was very interested in it also they also come with their own challenges of coexistence because i think they are one of the major threats of to human life and property and that's something that i grew up with having leopards and dangerous animals in our backyards also bring that sort of looming thought and it, it just made my you know uh, sort of professional outlook far more meaningful that this is something that I could relate to and connect with because those were values that I was growing up with. Like, hey, these, this is a challenge to live with dangerous animals. 
like why not study them to make like to see how we can better better understand that sort of coexistence so that happened and then i uh started studying uh lions uh, for my master's program and then continue and since then i have been studying um asian lions for the past 12 years and diversified to other carnivores to african lions to bulls and um doing some elephant work uh so um uh, so yeah, so it has been more of like transitioning from those fundamental understanding or questions of like how animals behave to how that can sort of support uh, or promote uh, coexistence. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah, that seems like such important work. And again, it just, I have not had the opportunity to connect with a lot of, um, particularly people in kind of the international big big carnivore world who actually grew up there. Um, and I think if you spend enough time in this world, most people start to understand. And even especially if you're living or spending extended periods of time in country doing field work, you start to understand. But I do think there's something very different about growing up and having experienced it. So as what we're going to kind of do today, this is going to be a slightly different episode from how we normally structure things. But I want to go through some of your research and use that to highlight um, the importance of um, and how potentially to do well, some really important things when we're considering, especially international conservation work, or even just going into communities that are not kind of your own. So I wanted to start out with a couple definitions for our folks at home. Um, and honestly, for myself to get to make sure we get everything um, squared away. So why don't we start out with um, parachute science? Um, is that a term that you use? Um, and what what does that mean to you? Yeah, so um, parachute signs are helicopter research, and there are other terms about it as well, like parasitic research or even safari study is typically when, um, you know, researchers from more resourced countries or wealthier countries um, go to developing or countries or places, non-native places, which are not as wealthy or not as as Full of resources to collect information or data or samples travel back to their own, own then travel back to their own country and then analyze the data publish the results with or no involvement with uh, local researchers and what happens with this kind of a practice is basically it undermines the role of local communities in um, ecological knowledge which kind of is a it, which is uh, a slippery slope in itself because then typically what happens is that that creates a, a strata or a system of power dynamics it also creates a system of um probably uh not a holistic understanding of the ecosystems or the systems that the researchers are studying because people who are or local communities who have been living there for generations have a far better or far more holistic understanding of that particular place and so that's that's basically is a complete should be a complete no-no for inclusive research yeah, definitely. And I'm excited to get a little bit more into some examples of what it what it can look like to do this well and to avoid this. Um, we don't necessarily need to give examples of what it what it looks like to, you know, be a parachute scientist or do. I love the, the safari science. I haven't heard that one before. Um, 
I think that that evokes uh, the right image. Um, so how does this, and again, I know that this question could be multiple books, um, but how does this kind of relate particularly to colonialism? Well, I think um, if you if you think if you just take a step back and think about colonialism as a definition, it would be like a practice or a policy of like a complete uh, political or a sociopolitical control over a place. It can be a country. It can be a unit of um, administration and occupying it and also exploiting it either economically, socioculturally, or a combination of everything, right? So that's basically what you can think about as a definition of colonialism. And if you're thinking about parachute science, it's sort of, it's a sort of a new colonialism, right? Because there are, there are people or there are organizations or there are agencies from a different part of the world which comes collects information, collects data from a particular place, which is not native to where the researchers are from, and then collect data and like scoot away, right? And so that's the, the underlying exploitation of information here, of, of understanding, of, of actually uh, knowing the system in a way that that local communities know that's that exploitation is basically where the where it links the colonialism the new colonialism and the practices that we have right now as parachute science so that's sort of what we are talking about in terms of like the colonial uh, uh, bridge or the colonial sort of um, the under underlying colonialism in data practices and research practices at this moment. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's uh, it's so fun. Um, you know, I can tell that you're, you're a professor and I can kind of start seeing some of these things linking back together to, you know, discussions that I had um, as a student as well about, you know, like what is wilderness and, you know, who even has a concept of what wilderness is and how that is you know, separating people from this, from the land in a way that, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I might be making too many different jumps and connections here for, um, for the podcasting medium, but yeah, I, I, I think, I think I'm still following and I hope that means that everyone at home is following as well. No, I, I absolutely would jump in and say like, yes, what is wilderness and this entire idea of the pristine virgin mm -hmm. wilderness in all our brochures and like mm -hmm. there's like fantastic open landscape there are elephants out there but there is no presence of mm -hmm. human settlements or, or right. people so yeah. and the whole idea of like are we part of nature or it's like who who brought about this idea of pristine wilderness that's a very western concept and that's Super a very western, modern yes. concept yeah. And it's a very modern concept, right? Yeah. And I, I'm talking about, so I come from that part of the world where we have been talking about sanctuaries in, in 300 BC. We are talking about Abhiranis, which are basically, which are basically protected areas, but which have interactions of humans and biodiversity where humans and biodiversity both coexist and there are rules of how to make that coexistence 
in the best possible way. It's not the idea of fortress conservation that we have right now, the whole Western, um, new Western philosophy of like fortress conservation, where people out protected areas. Of course, I'm not undermining protected areas at all. I'm just, I'm just questioning the narrative that led to the formation of current protected area thought as a, as a narrative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I know that was something I thought about a lot when I was proposing a, a Fulbright to go back to Kenya and looking at, you know, most of the research that I was able to find that I was trying to build my proposal off of was all in national parks, which are, you know, kind of the highest level of protection in most countries um, and almost very rarely have people who are permanently inhabiting the area. And I was hoping to be working in a community community conservancy, which in Kenya are these kind of managed multi-use um, lands where we were going to be um, working directly alongside and with, you know, the local semi-nomadic herders. And, you know, hope we were hoping to try to design this in a way that ultimately the data that we found could be useful to these folks as well, or at least, you know, ask them, ask them what they thought about a lot of it. Um, so, you know, th this is kind of where a lot of this stuff started coming up for me. I think when I was primarily doing research in the U.S. and, you know, if most of my fieldwork was, you know, doing uh, bird and bat mitigation on wind farms, I wasn't as spending as much time worrying about colonialism um, and how we were conducting our research. Um, and then as soon as we started going to Kenya and then we just did some work in Guatemala, now it's starting to be something that you know, I'm personally trying to make sure I educate myself on and, and also just make sure that we talk about a lot um, for folks who maybe aren't doing this sort of work yet, but are looking at what we're doing and think it looks really cool. Okay, great. Well, let's, let's talk about things that we need to be thinking about as we go forward with this. So, yeah, do you have anything to add there? No, I think, I think it's, it's, um, this this entire process of like learning as we as we experience it there there like we have lived experiences and then like networking or connecting with people who have had lived experiences just to be a better informed researcher is the way forward because i definitely think that we cannot like lived experiences supremely important but then we can only have so much of lived experiences but that's where collaborating and networking comes into the picture right you meet you are being cognizant of the fact that there are people at, on the ground on different parts of the world who are working in different systems who have who have different kinds of knowledge that they bring on the table local communities who have been living there for generations and we have like and collaborating with them collaborating with with them in the most uh, efficient and the most uh, inclusive way possible is the way that we can have um, responsible research. Uh, research that is important not only from the for knowledge or for science for the sake of science but also for communities who are living right there in those places. So I think I think that's the way forward, right? Responsible, doing not just good research, but also responsible research. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
canine conservationist is thrilled to offer a self-study online class for those interested in joining the field of conservation dog professionals. This course includes 18 modules of video lecture, assigned reading, homework, and quizzes. We have lectures from 10 amazing guest instructors, including fostering motivation and joy through high placement training with Laura Holder of Conservation Dogs Collective, safety training and assessments of dog teams with guests Fiona Jackson and Tracy Litton of Skyless Ecology, special considerations for insect and plant training samples with Arden Blumenthal of the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, and building networks and acquiring clients with Paul Bunker. Our alumni group is active and supportive, and we welcome students of all levels and backgrounds. The course is priced at $750 with generous financial aid and discounts available for Patreon members. Learn more and sign up at canineconservationist.org slash class. As good of time as any then to pivot into talking about some of your recent research because you have you sent over some very very interesting papers on behavioral ecology that were a lot of fun to to, to read so why don't we talk about some of the research you've done through the lens of kind of inclusion and you know what what you did to ensure that the community um, was involved from start to finish or you know where they could be and where it made sense for uh, for your research. Um. Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been reflecting upon that a lot because I think um, I am still work in progress as we work through this. Uh, Like I am getting more sensitized, more educated, more learning, more stuff. So I'm only reflecting about how things have been before. But I definitely think that while starting off um, doing my um, graduate research, both uh, my master's and my PhD since I've been studying lions. And one of the major, one of the main questions that I have sort of uh, pursued is to try and understand uh, mating strategies in um, Asian lions. And uh, that's something um, that was, that came to, that, that idea is, came to me or basically was born out of interactions and, and communications and conversations with local communities because, uh, people who live in this particular place have been living with lions for the past 200, 300 years. And um, so they have been uh, observing animals for so long. So of course it it was important for me to actually understand what they knew before trying to get into the picture of like, okay, asking questions, because I think these would be the questions, right? So I, when I went and started studying lions, I went in with, a thought process of what we know about lions that comes from these quintessential like you know african serengeti and like tanzanian um uh, play uh, parks of serengeti and gorongoro where there has been like such pioneering long-term research that has been done and um i i went in with that kind of thought process of like lions are lions Right, so they would be there. But then, when I went there, uh, went uh, to Gear, which is in Gujarat. Uh, first of all, I did not know the language, and so I took, I really uh, was motivated to learn the language. So I really learned. I started speaking the language, like understanding it in like three months, because it's near to the kind of language that I speak but then started speaking the language pretty fast after that as well. But what that helped me was to 
basically communicate with local communities and they did not have to translate what they were feeling they were exactly talking the way they were feeling which makes a whole lot of difference when you are actually communicating about uh, different things and so what we know of classic lion biology coming from like these pioneering studies done in tanzania is that um you know there are uh lions are egalitarian males have coalitions that are pretty much they don't have dominance hierarchies females are also egalitarian in their groups and males uh sort of monopolize reproductively monopolize the females in their group so it's like a group of males sort of monopolizing an entire pride and that's what we know but when i started talking to local communities they were pretty much like no there are like females have multiple partners from different group different male groups and i was like huh that's interesting so i would say and that's what we basically went and investigated through my phd and we came out like hey females are promiscuous they have multiple um, ma male partners from different uh, um you know different rival male groups and that sort of confuses paternity which is a very win-win scenario for females uh but that sort of idea actually came because first of all we had a long-term project and we had information that we could back upon and rely upon and we were looking at these pedigree and all that but also because we were like i could manage to go and chat with local communities our field assistants are from the local communities um, belong to those communities so we could chat and basically they were saying like yeah this is this is sort of things that are we are observing we have been observing and that sort of molded the kinds of questions that i asked so i believe that one of the ways in which we definitely can sort of safeguard against parachute signs is like if researchers from different other places go and work is it is important to understand or at least make an effort to learn the language it will not happen overnight but we have fantastic tools right now to learn new languages and and that just opens up an entire world of understanding of the system because there's so much lost in translation that it's just too difficult to fathom and especially when you're talking about the natural world where there is so much of feelings and vibe involved right local communities will not be able to translate how they feel or what's the vibe like so it just does not happen so if you can learn that language that's that's not the like that's not like you learn the language done and dusted that's that's all you have to do for pa avoiding parachute science no that's one of the steps that you do and then tr like i i always like i think my field assistants our field assistants are the are my mentors in the field they are each of them are worth eight or nine PhDs themselves because they have been working with PhD students and they have had these PhD students happen under their mentorship. And th that's why um, it's, it's very important for me to acknowledge what they have brought to this particular uh, project. They are collaborators and they are definitely one of the, they are the major pillars for taking um making this project a success or at, at least 
trying to understand or answer those questions about very fundamental line behavior and um, yeah so i think those are some of the ways that i was mindful of uh not indulging into uh parachute science because i also so to say am an outsider to the system because i'm not from that particular state but um yeah so it's it's those are i think some of the ways in which i i felt that it made uh my research far more responsible and far more holistic so yeah yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And that's, you know, I, this is such a small minor example, but it's the only one I can really think of. But, you know, one of the things we run into in Spanish with big cat research is that um, people will call jaguars tigres, which um, will directly translate to tiger. And if you're not used to that, um, you know, it, it's very confusing and kind of upsetting the first dozen times you hear it. But that's just, that's just what the local language is going to to be um, and getting used to the fact that they don't mean to, you know, they don't mean tiger. They're not confused about the difference between a tiger and a jaguar. Um, it's just a linguistic um, thing. And, you know, I, one of the things I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately because I'm living somewhere where I'm speaking Spanish all of the time and my Spanish is very good, but it's not as good as my English right. is the, the amount to which imperfect language makes you feel less intelligent than you are and makes other people think that you are less intelligent than you are. And I think as researchers coming into communities, it's important for us to be the ones who are maybe on that back foot trying to figure out how to communicate um, because I think it makes it much harder to dismiss what someone else is saying um, or, you know, really trust what they're talking about when I'm trying, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this well, but it looks like you're nodding. So maybe you can paraphrase or chime in and help me out. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I think I, I am like, I get what you're trying to say. It's like, yeah, you like, if you are sort of like coming in with that upper hand of like, I, this, I know more about that system that just puts you into that sort of an unconscious bias of not letting, yes. uh, not letting uh, like the community or, or the traditional ecological knowledge flow through you because you would be gatekeeping everything. Like you would be talking against all of that because you're not uh, trusting that. But if you come in with that sort of, because as you're saying, like not knowing the language is, or basically struggling with a language is a very humbling uh, feeling. And that sort of humility is very much needed for res responsible science. Yeah, definitely. And I guess, yeah, maybe to stick with the, the tigre example, like I think it would be much easier if someone said, oh, watch out for the tiger as I'm in the Guatemalan jungle. I would be like, okay, this person just clearly doesn't know what they're talking about. And I'm going to totally disregard what they're saying. And yeah, I would have this, this bias. But as soon as we're speaking Spanish and I'm the one having to be like, am I understanding him correctly here or her? Um, you know, it, it helps just, I think, increase that credulity and really increase your ability to, to interface with, with the local, with locals on so many other levels. Um, yeah. So 
the other the other example that I was hoping we could kind of talk through as a, um, as we go through some of your research is about field safety, um, particularly. I think if you're kind of like a swashbuckling six foot two white guy, um, there are some aspects of field safety that um, everyone needs to think about, you know, as far as like snakes uh, and elephants. Honestly, you might be at higher risk if you're um, a six foot tall white guy because of your lived experiences um, with some of those things. But there are other things that are going to show up differently depending on who you are in the field. And I don't know if you have any stories or examples that we can explore there. Um, that's a great question, and all, in all my years of working with uh, animals that are that are amazing, uh, very charismatic and beautiful, and also very overwhelmingly dangerous, I think in I think I have my my field safety or like all the all the uh, all every time I have felt uncomfortable or like it's been like a, like a sticky situation, it has all, it has, it has barely been from like animals. It's always been associated with humans. And, and I'm not a, like a six foot two, I'm barely five, 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 six. And, um, and I, I'm a person of color. And, and so, so I guess there are differences in how, in navigating, um, the fee uh, navigating field work. So, well, I would say that I can quote a couple of, um, examples. So I think this was during, uh, field work while I was, um, tracking, following, uh, one of our, uh, radio colored lionesses. And this is basically again, uh, a time when we are doing these 24 hour continuous monitoring sessions where we are following uh, a radio tag line lion and their group members uh, 24 hours a day for at least somewhere between eight to 15 uh, days. So there are two teams, um, three people in each team. I always took the night shift. So it's like uh, five in the evening to nine in the morning and from nine in the morning to five in the evening. So it's like we are just continuously following them, uh, writing down all behavior, whatever they're doing. It's a, it's a all behavior sampling throughout the time, wherever they're moving. Um, so one of our radio colored, and this was uh, one night, uh, one of our radio colored lioness went into uh, a village settlement and uh, she and her two sub-adults during that time killed three livestock. People were not happy, of course, right? People don't, well, while uh, the Gujarat people are far more tolerant towards um, losses towards la from large carnivores like lions, but still it's livestock, their major economy being at risk. And it's not an easy feat to live with large carnivores. It's dangerous. So, um, and this was three in the morning and I, and the entire village is up in arms of like, you know, they are really mad because, uh, they have just gotten three, like a person got three of their major economy, economy unit got killed. Right. And it's. And I, we were in the middle of it. The people are not happy. And the crowd was like, they are trying to blame someone and they are not, they're not blaming the lions. They're blaming us because 
somehow they connected the radio caller with the researcher and that's just like that just completely blew out of proportion and it was a very scary moment because you know it's there were lots of threats and everything being passed and the only thing that led to me sort of every time i think about this i this incident i get like goosebumps i'm like oh that day that night i am so lucky to be like you know my my car was not smashed or something didn't happen to somebody all of that but i think the only uh way out that we like that only thing that helped was like i had my field assistants and all of us could speak the local language so we were all speaking to people we were all communicating i'm like listen this is what's happening and this is why we are here and we are not part of this but tell me what your allegations are we can take it to the state government to get you compensated we are on your side this is what we are doing but we were speaking in the local language and that sort of reduced a lot of tension right so that really helped and coming back to other local like field work safety and that this is something that i teach in class when i'm teaching the courses that i teach uh like such as wildlife monitoring because um i think being a person of color in an in a mostly a white wor- world it also with a very uh different kind of a weapon culture or a gun culture than the kind of place that i come from it's very difficult to reconcile with that and it's it's that that's internal um shakiness and like you know pullbacks of like i don't know if i will be uh safe in the field or not and there are so many stories out there people have lived experiences of guns being drawn at them or 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 bullets being fired so yeah it just make the whole uh um it's it just makes um field work quite inaccessible to a lot of different people having very different like having different kinds of identities. Yeah, definitely. And uh yeah, I'm I I'm glad that we brought up the language thing so many times and in so many ways and I think you know one thing, you know, people in the conservation dog world, you know, we tend to do a lot of contract work, a lot of short-term work where it might not might might not be reasonable for us to be able to pick up the local language everywhere we go, but at least we can have field tech, scouts, you know, our orienteers, something being local. And, you know, I was really amazed. I've, most of my travel has been in Spanish-speaking countries where, you know, I've been speaking Spanish quite fluently for over 10 years now. Um, but when I was in Kenya, you know, you know, just learning how to say thank you, good morning, what's the weather like, you know, really, really basic stuff goes a pretty far way if that's all you're able to do. Um, and one of the things I was really thinking about in the livestock story as well is just having an understanding of what a cow or a goat or a sheep means to that family because it's not, you know, just a cow <laughs> or just a goat or just a sheep or whatever it was. Um, the same way, and I, I don't know what it's like in India, but, you know, in Kenya, like, cattle are quite literally currency. Um yeah, it's a, and even growing up in a farming community in, in you know, Wisconsin, um, where right. there was there was a ton of emotion and a ton of very, very important financial realities around livestock. It's it's still just not quite the same thing. And your your understanding of that, I'm sure, helped the situation a lot. 
No, I absolutely, I absolutely echo your thoughts. It's like it's currency. Their fam, their family members. They, there is an, there is a like a like a like an economic bond, bond, but it's there's also like a personal bond to to the uh, to these animals, to domestic animals, right? We feel strongly about domestic animals, and and they do too, and we all do, and it's a it's a huge loss, and like what I feel is like knowing that the language made me sort of understand the pain and the reality that people were going through. It's not just, as you said, it's not just a cow or a buffalo. It's a loss. And that loss, comprehending that loss was difficult. Yeah, well, so then as we're wrapping up here, you know, you mentioned that you teach a class on field safety and inclusion. I was wondering, um, you know, what things maybe come up in that class that we haven't covered yet in this discussion? Well, uh, so the class, so I teach wildlife monitoring techniques and I also teach animal behavior in both of these classes. Like we, I have a very strong uh, sort of like presence of like what it is to be like a field researcher and like what all nuances that you have to consider or what it is to be a researcher and a responsible researcher. A few things other than like field safety or talking about like what what all things they might or my students might uh, sort of uh, come across in the field talking about different uh, lived experiences. I bring in guest speakers from different parts of the world who are basically like friends and colleagues and collaborators who have who work from snow leopards to uh, marine um, dugongs and manatees and very different uh, very separate, disparate experiences, different career stages, and based on their conversations and different gender identities, and based on their because because I can only speak to some of those because I can I have only have had only a component of those lived experiences, right? But then with bringing these um, guest speakers, I can provide my students with role models that they can follow beyond me and others around here so that's one thing that i that i do and that has been a strong focus of my class uh, also the other thing that i have been doing is like we read papers published papers but i've also like one of the things that my students have to do is to go and research the researchers themselves it's not just the science but who's doing the science that's also important Right. And that's something I think all my students have mentioned it like, oh, this is the first time this has happened. Like we have been told to like we mostly read papers. We're talking about we are critiquing the science or we are looking into the research, what the research tells us. But I'm like, yes, that's great. But let's take a moment. And that's additional incentive for them. Like, hey, if you do this, you get like you. I start, get the ball rolling by giving them incentives and then it's like a practice. So they are, then they are going and finding out what the, what the researchers are doing, what the researchers basically outlook is. And, and they have written fantastic essays about not only the research, but also about the researchers and how that sort of connects the whole, whole outlook of that particular research per se. 
So I think that's something that uh, has been one of the most rewarding moments for me when I read those essays from my students that students have actually gone and read. And we've had fantastic, wonderful conversations about uh, uh about very perceptive conversations about these. Also, uh, uh, the a few other things that I that we also talk about is how to responsibly use different kinds of technology. Like you're putting camera traps. What are the kind of ethics that you're gonna use or gonna follow? Uh, are you gonna Are you gonna report any illeg- illegal activities? Is that in the purview of your research? Right. That kind of perceptive conversations. Because I think it's very important to have those conversations right away, because if people are going to get into um, a career of following this profession, then people should be aware of what they might be um, encountering. And as I say, and as I tell them every now and then, that uh, probably the animals and the wilderness, although it's a very dangerous place, if you are going to work in the wilderness, it's a supremely dangerous place because um, it's overwhelming, it's powerful, it's difficult to think about that kind of power, right? But also the animals and the plants and the trees, they are not the only dangerous things probably that you would encounter. They're associated different other problems and um, considerations of safety. Like if you are in the middle of somewhere and you don't have anybody around, you probably have to keep these safety rules in place. So those kinds of thoughts where, so yeah, so I think, I think that's something that I have been, that I've been very strongly invested in. Uh, in my classes, and that has resonated quite well. And I think, um, and I am just by conversing and communicating and talking to a lot of different people, including you right now, I am like, you know, evolving, bringing in newer, different thoughts to make it a far more inclusive, more approachable and accessible courses over the year. Yeah, well, and it's truly amazing to me. So I graduated college in 2016. How far this conversation seems to have come, even in that, I guess it's seven years. Like, it's not nothing. But, you know, I don't remember really talking about this from the lens of field safety um, in my undergrad courses. And we did talk about field safety. Um but yeah, and I really love this idea of, you know, looking into the researchers as well. That's not something that I did in undergrad. Um, yeah. Well, is there anything else on this topic that, you know, you wanted to circle back to or expand upon or that I forgot to ask you about before we go? Well, I think the one other thing that I also mentioned, which it might now might be a completely side point, is it's, it's probably, it's a good uh, heads up to every researcher that, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a tough um, field, I guess. Uh, there we mm-hmm. it's it's more or less like we are overworked and underpaid all our lives, probably. But yeah, yeah it's like it's getting it's not about it's it does not make us rich, but uh, it makes us enriched. enriched but it's yeah. important. It, it's important to know what we are signing up for. 
So. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, we talk all the time about testing things out on this court, you know, on this, this podcast and, you know, nothing has to be forever. You know, even like our fieldwork in Guatemala, when I was talking to my new PhD advisor, he's the same advisor that, uh, of the student that I was working with there. And he was like, you know, would you be interested in trying to continue Ellen's research or expand upon that for your own? And I was kind of like, you know what, Tom? The bugs there were the worst bugs I've experienced in my entire life, and I've lived a lot of places with really bad bugs. I actually don't think that's where I want my main my main field site to be for the next five to seven years. Um, and you know that's okay. I'm so glad we went. I would go back for another two week period of time, but you know, and that's that doesn't have anything to do with say, uh, field. Uh, well, inclusion, but, you know, to some degree, safety, you know, you, every bug bite you get in the tropics has some chance of carrying something horrifying with it. Um, yeah. I had one tick bite yeah, that I, just healed now after about three months, and it seems yeah. like nothing came I, of it, but, you know. Yeah, I, I keep telling my students I've had malaria thrice, and <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's not... It's it's tough it's tough to be out there, but it's also as you said, it's very important to actually know what you're signing up for. So it's mm -hmm. important to feel comfortable to do something, rather than like just like you know not knowing what you're getting into. As you yeah. and as you very very rightly said, that nothing is forever. Yeah. You, yeah. There's, there's always there's always like if you feel uncomfortable, then just don't do it. It's not worth yeah. it. Yeah. It's not yeah. worth it. And, and, you know, maybe on the safety note, uh, you know, try to avoid getting into situations you can't get yourself out of or, you know, because, you know, emergencies can go bad really, really quickly. You know, I mean, and this, this is a whole other topic that we don't need to get into, but, you know, just thinking about, you know, encounters with elephants, or, you know, you, you can't just walk away at that point, but if that's, you know, that's where we get into prevention and, you know, there's, there's just so much to think about as far as the safety stuff goes and the inclusion and how those fit together. Um, you know, one last little anecdote to share before I ask if you have any more, um, you know, I was working with someone on one of the projects that I have been on and actually this has happened more than once where, you know, we agreed to use partner or in some cases use boyfriend as the local translation for someone who was in, um, uh, a gay relationship uh, instead of using the correct gendering in the translation um, just because it, you know for in various places that we've worked internationally it's not necessarily safe to to say that you're gay um, and I think as students it's hard to figure out you know how when when and where you want to do research and how you can do that safely and how you can do that in a way that feels good for you and your partner because I'm sure most partners don't really want to be erased that way or misgendered that way um, but it's something that may come up particular and honestly with the way things are in the U.S. it's not even just an international thing right now. Yeah absolutely no I think I think it's it's important to I, I I like a couple of my students uh, like a lot of my students are graduating in like three days and some of them want to continue with me to work uh, with me uh, in the future and I keep t I'm like okay let's go have a feel of how it looks like like you looked at the data and everything let's look go find out how it looks like actually in the field and then think about whether you want to commit. 
or not because you might just, it it might either you you would fall in love with it or it might be like no no it's it, this is not for me and that's totally fine no judgment you do something else or you do, you go and study some other system. I I will never be able to study probably polar uh, or or really like permafrost uh, places because I am not a winter person or like yeah. a snow person, and I understand that, and that's not gonna work out for me. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the same advice I got when I, you know, I called a couple of folks as I got the job offer for the work that we did in Kenya, and I was like, you know, a, you know, what do you know about this organization, and would you recommend going, and you know, what do I need to think about before I fly myself to Kenya because it was my first time doing something like that, and the advice I got over and over and over again from people was, go but don't sign yourself up for a two or three year contract without having been there for a while, um, and that's what right. we did. You know, I was there for. Six and a half, seven weeks, um, and then I was ready to write a Fulbright to say that I was going to come back. And for everyone at home, um, we hope that this podcast inspired you uh, to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find the show notes, transcripts, um, you know, merch, sign up for courses, all that great stuff, all over at canineconservationists.org. And we'll be back in your earbuds next week. Bye.